Welcome to AI Plus X podcast, which invites researchers and founders to discuss AI applications in different sectors. This is Ling Jie. I am a research engineer at DeepMind. This is Rachel, and I am a machine learning scientist at Amazon Web Services. We are your hosts. Our discussion is only intended for informational and entertainment purpose. It is unrelated with the hosts and guests employed institutions. This podcast is not investment advice, and you should do your own research. It's our great pleasure to introduce our guest speakers today, Kevin and Shenli. Kevin finished his master's degree at Stanford University on computer science, and currently is the founder and CEO of UnitX. Shenli finished his PhD also at Stanford University on mechanical engineer and minor in computer science. He is currently a robotic research engineer at Stanford Research Institute, SRI International. So welcome, Kevin and Shenli. Before we start, it will be great for our listeners to know more about who you are, background, where you are working on now. Could you please quickly introduce yourself and tell us one fun fact about you? Kevin, do you want to start? Sure. My name is Kevin. And I'm the co-founder and CEO of UnitX. What we do is build the robotic eyes and robotic brain for factories. We install vision systems powered by deep learning on the production lines to inspect defects, kick out defective parts. Yeah, my, my background is I love building stuff. I love making model airplanes, robots. And, but I studied computer science because my mom was a mechanical engineer and she didn't like mechanical engineering and she wanted me to do software instead. So I did that, but deep in my heart, I love mechanical engineering. I love building machines, building robots, and I love what I'm working on. What is your, what is your fun fact? Oh, let's see. I love, I love gardening. Actually, I plant tomatoes. I plant, I have about 11 different types of fruit planted around my house. Is that done by a robot or is that done by you? <laughs> done by me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Probably could be your next startup. I, I, think, I think that's a very interesting field, actually. Yeah. But we can't we can save that for another date. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Shenli, how about you? My name is Shenli. I'm a robotic research engineer at the robotics lab in SRI International. My PhD work was in robot in-hand manipulation. At the moment, robot manipulation is still one of the directions I'm focusing on. Aside from that, I'm spending decent amount of time working on projects related to visual serving, haptics, and teleoperation. Opposite from Kevin, I'm a mechanical engineer by training, and I slowly grew up interest in controlling the algorithms. And so I'm kind of heading towards another direction. Well, fun fact. Okay, fun fact, I, I took a lot of courses at Stanford. I took over 100 units of level courses at Stanford. I think that's Probably more than anybody I've done. Very interesting. Kevin initially started as a software engineer, but growing into a hardware person, want to do hardware robotics, and Shenley is the opposite. Because that's the beauty of robotics. It's very interdisciplinary. It actually touched a lot of different aspects, right? Software, mechanical, there's electrical. It's, that's a really interesting part of that. So I guess there are a lot of things you can do for robotics. So what is your day looks like working in robotic industry? Kevin, you've worked as a CEO. Most of the things today are meeting for you, but what's your day looks like? So I do spend most of my time in facing sales, 
or service related work. My co-founder and CTO, Max, he, you know, takes care of the product, the engineering, the technical side of things, Adam, the operation side of things. So we are deploying robotic systems in factories, deploying a system on a factory floor, you need to persuade a lot of different stakeholders and it is very different skill set from building a robot or working on the software. It, it is a lot of people related work to getting people comfortable with this technology, to demonstrate the technology, to explain to them, educate them. So that that's where I stand most of my time today. So it sounds more like instead of dealing with robot, you're dealing with human beings more these days. That's right. And uh, how about you, Shanley? I believe you're still playing with robot all the time these days, right? Which yeah, I think my work days are more similar to most engineers. They're filled with essentially project works and a limited amount of administrative duties. The situation varies a lot depending on what projects I'm working on and what phases of projects. Most days I, I do need to work on site because, because of physical robots involved in my work. One thing that might be different from a typical engineering job is that we will need to write proposals for projects we're interested in in order to get fundings for a future project. So SRI is a fairly PI-driven company and a lot of the innovations happen that way. That's very interesting. I didn't know you actually are doing a lot of PI to secure fundings, but if you can secure funding, that proof whatever you're doing is, is meaningful. Right. It's kind of important to get funding to do the project I want. I, I can get away with doing other people's projects, but there are things I really want to do and only I can get funding for that. Interesting. Maybe next time you can just talk with Kevin and pitch it. You see whether Kevin can help you secure some funding for the next project. I think getting academic funding, it's a, it requires a very different skill set than business funding. So I have a lot of respect for, for Shilin Wu for what he does. And now you have ChatGPTs to write a proposal for you to get your firm. That can be an inner talk in a day, but yes, that's, that will be a really interesting interaction between pitching chatbot and then the real robot that we're talking about here today. I'd like to dive a bit deeper into, you know, what's the current stages of robotic development today. But before we dive too much deep into that, I would like to take a step back to see how robots industry evolves over years since its birth. Kevin, you're working in industry and then generally in academia. So could you please just give us an overview of what robot research in academia looks like and what robots application industry looks like? I guess maybe Shanley can start from you. That, that's really a, a huge topic. The robotic research has evolved a lot since the first industrial robot came around last century in around 1960s. I believe in the 70s, there's a lot of robot research have start to have a progress. For example, you know, that's when the, the Stanford arm was developed in the 1970s and SRI had their first mobile robot with artificial intelligence called Shiki. I think you can still find that on their website. There were a few very famous robot hands coming around in the 1980s, such as the Stanford JPL hand and the Utah MIT. I believe a lot of early robotic research focuses on control and kinematics because getting robots to move fast and accurately in factory settings is important. For example, you know, Stara robots and Delta robots were both invented in that period. There are a few changes to the years that have happened. And the, the first thing is computation. The improvement in computation has, has significantly influenced areas such as signal processing, computer vision control. 
there's a, a, a very big drop in the hardware cost recently. Um, microprocessors and sensors have become much more accessible to average researchers. So it's not as expensive to do robotic research these days compared to a long time ago. Even more recently, another related change is the fabrication process, such as 3D printing, the ability to quickly prototype robot at a very low cost. That have definitely sparked another round of hardware innovation. Very interesting. That's definitely a great summary of, of academia. The next question is for you, Kevin. There are many robotic companies, the most well-known like ABB, Fennec, KUKA, Yaswaka, and there are a lot of juicy robots such as iRobots. There are a lot of startups, Boston Dynamic, and also your startup, the UnitX. It looks like this field is, is very segmented. There are a lot of different robots solving a lot of different problems. So what are kinds of robots that existing today in market? And how is actually the robotic industry divided today? I think this is a very big question. Uh, at a high level, I think there are robots that, that are like humans, and then there are robots that are not like humans. So ultimately, they're, they're like in science fiction movies, there could be robots that look exactly like a human, act like a human, think like a human, right? Or you could take, you know, any one or two of the three, you know, look like, act like, think like, and, and you know, achieve a subset of, of that. And then there's the robots that are not like humans. So, you know, I would count Roomba as a robot. I will count a self-driving car as a robot. I would count, you know, like a, a drone as a robot. So you can think about robots in that case as there are many different ways to categorize. There's industrial use cases, robots, there are consumer use cases, or you can categorize them as with legs, you know, that can move around or robot without legs that are stationary, or you can categorize in the verticals they work in, right? There are robots that are in transportation industry, self-driving cars. There are robots in household, like Roomba. There are robots that are in factories, you know, industrial robot arms. So yeah, there are many different ways to categorize and yeah. Depending on the use case, that's how I would think about it. What robotic company you think today completely change our societies and then free human from all kinds of intense labor works to make human truly be human? So there are three industries I think that will be impacted by robots. There's transportation, because in transportation, there are 1.4 billion motor vehicles and every car has a driver behind it today. So they will be replaced by robots. And then there's household. So there are 2.1 billion households in the world. And each household, there are people doing uh, chores such as, you know, washing dishes, washing laundry, mopping the floor. You know, that should be replaced by robots at some point. And finally, in manufacturing, there are half a billion human workers in factories full-time. And in 30 years, there will be much fewer than half a billion people working in factories. So I think those are the three major verticals when, when it comes to robots having a big impact. Is there still any technology lacking at this moment for robots to have even wider adoption on transportation, household and manufacturing? You know, is the technology already, it's just times or marketing sales. We just need to tell people robot is actually ready to do its job? Or you think from technology-wise, there's still like missing pieces in the process? 
yeah, I think both in terms of technology and also in terms of food market, technology-wise, you look at self-driving car, right? I think it's a field that has been growing so fast in the very recent five years. And, you know, just recently, you know, Tesla's latest self-driving car update, I think it's 10.69. It's very impressive, actually. But, you know, self-driving car still cannot handle a lot of corner cases. For example, when, when you have a plastic bag that, that's flying in front of the car, how do you tell if it's plastic bag or if it's something that's rigid that's going to destroy the car? Things like that, right? So th there's definitely a lot of technical challenges in closing the loop between perception and motion and planning. I think that still needs to be solved. And also go to the market side, right? Anywhere in the to be use case, industrial use case, there's politics, there's bureaucracy, there's people problems that you know, the system is built around humans, but it's not built around robots. That's a business problem, right? How do you incentivize the stakeholders to adopt robots to shift the mindset to adopt robots? That, that's a, a business problem. Yeah, actually, what Kevin just said about system is built around human, but not built around what is super inspiring. That is a lot of problem for all of research coming to applications. That technology is not something we need to handle or solve, but it's really the human, the human issue, the customer's adoptions. But with that, let's now take a look at the future of robotics. I'm super excited about all the futures, especially imagining the future of robotics development will be much cheaper, much easier. And so more and more people can have their physical robots, or even we have kids program their robots to make the robotic development easier. I don't see an increasing adoptions of using open source robotic software such like robotic operating system. So I would like to hear both of your opinions on ROS or other robotic softwares that you use frequently. Um, do you think they will develop to be a framework like TensorFlow or PyTorch? Because Google recently by part of ROS, which is a big news, and people are talking about that, whether Google will make ROS to be the next Android for robots, like PyTorch or TensorFlow. I want to hear both of your opinions on ROS and robotic software. What do you imagine them to be for five or 10 years? Shani, do you want to go ahead first? Sure. I'm actually really optimistic about the acquisition. I think the better resources from Google might lead to better adoption of ROS. I can see the potential concerns about, you know, prioritizing profits over the needs of community. After all, Ross is a very community-driven, but we'll just have, have to wait and see to see what happens. I think an improved version of Ross is probably something that will help a lot. You know, for example, a, some sort of a hardware abstraction layer in the Ross, I think will be very useful for wider adoption of Ross. Right now it's provided by robot manufacturers, you know, that supports Ross. Uh, another thing I think that's really important is a 
a good simulator. I guess in general, uh, a very capable and easy to use physics simulation is still very needed in the robotics community. And that's something I would like to see in the next few years, hopefully. Interesting. What kind of, or what kind of simulator do you imagine? I ever been heard researchers, engineers, PM seem to real problems that always complain about the current simulators. But actually know more, could you explain more about what kind of capable or easy to use physical simulation software do you imagine it will be? I think it depends on what area you're working in. in. In my case, I haven't seen a lot of good simulators that's good at simulating the rolling contact specifically. So there are a lot of edge cases that simulations will fail. And I think those are the, the places that's likely to trigger the steam to rail gap. I think down the road, even when hardware gets much cheaper, we will still need simulation uh, for various reasons, right? You know, simulation is a great way to kind of mitigate the risks involved in hardware operation. Having some type of a simulated testing environment has much lower risk than testing real robust directly. And Simulations can be used in robot design iterations. So, you know, it's, it, it's all about interaction. And if the inter interaction is not realistic, then it creates problems for replacing the, the real hardware. Yeah, there, I mean, there's a couple more reasons why I think simulations is quite important, especially recently we've seen people collecting large amount of data from machine learning and, you know, it allows us to create various environments, generating more robust neutral algorithms. I think, I think in general, the whole community will benefit from a, a, a really good simulation. And I think most simulation environments are still developing at the moment. Specifically in the case of ROS, I think the, the one that ROS uses is, is really not that great. The ROS is it's not a simulation environment, right? Like they have some sort of a visualizer routine. I've seen people using open source ones such as Bullet that, that is, that is great for a lot of things that it's, I mean, first of all, it's, it's open source, but I, I didn't have a lot of luck in, in terms of simulating manipulations. I use Mojoko a lot, but I, I definitely run into issues when it comes to rolling contact. Yeah. So, you know, in general, I think some sort of a capable basic simulation is still needed. Yeah, yeah, totally. I was like chatting with a professor from UBC. He's like super, super senior in this field of simulation. And he has been showing me his work, like building like this, simulate this agent or doing, especially in autonomous driving or just doing random things. But his simulator claimed to be much better than most of the autonomous driving companies, which is kind of impressive. Great. Then, so we have been talking about the robotics futures and the last topic in this podcast I do also discuss is about the lesson learned during your guys' career. Since you guys be super senior in this field, I have been working on this field, in this field for the five, 10 years. I, I'd like to know, oh, through your career working in robotics so far, what are the biggest lessons that you learned in matter software? or courses that you took, or people that you met, et cetera, anything. Kevin, do you want to start? Yeah, I think when it comes to business, applying robotics technology in the real world, I think the, the biggest challenge is when going from the lab 
into production environment, right? So in, in a lab, you have a controlled environment and everything is looking good, working well. As soon as you deploy into production, all kinds of issues could, could start to happen, right? You don't have the same type of ambient lighting that could, could affect the, the lighting, the camera, the images captured that could affect the deep learning's results. Or you could have vibration that blurs the image. You could have temperature swings that affect the reliability of your electronics components. It goes on, goes on and on, right? So there are lots of uncontrolled variables in a production that needs to be accounted for. And especially in industrial applications, as opposed to consumer applications, right? Industrial applications, you need a very good uptime, right? Because if, if you're down, you know, the customer operations could be affected. So, you know, there's a very different level of reliability, robustness, and quality and the repeatability required to operate at that level. And that is a just very different mindset than, you know, getting something running once in the office, in the lab, but to run repeatably 24, seven, 365. Yeah. So that, that has been a big learning for us. Yeah. Totally. I remember when I started teaching machine learning, we started working on machine learning. I was like, okay, after deploying the model, I should work. But then I realized, okay, the deep data is different. Production environment is so different compared with the testing environment. There are a lot of different things there. And the model we used to train is like super expensive, but when you're doing startups or we are working products, it shouldn't be like super efficient or economical. But yeah, thank you. We have a need. Do you want to add on about your analysis, especially during your research? Sure, I guess. I would say the biggest lesson I've learned was not to do everything by myself. I kind of found the loophole of trying to do everything by myself. And I find it very helpful to have a, a breadth of knowledge in robotics, but when it comes to specific areas within robotics, it's often very helpful to get someone, to get some experts with the type of specialties we need, not only because they can typically do these type of things much quicker and better. A lot of times they, they might have insights that I, I didn't even know that I needed. So trying to learn everything by myself and do everything by myself was probably held me back for a, for a while. And, you know, when I really started to reach out to look for collaborators in my projects, and I said, but everything went much better. Yeah, totally. You just remind me about, so at Amazon, when you, we are like hiring new apply scientists. We test both of the breadth of the science knowledge and also the depth of the science knowledge. Just another example is like when Transformer, the big model in machine learning came out, where the chat GPT or other GPT models use it. So it only NLP failed. But then later we felt like, okay, in computer vision, we can still leverage the Transformer model. And then like a few years later, then computer vision failed also using Transformer model. But totally agree that breath is super important. And that actually will bring these to the next questions. So I always say more and more people are really interested in robotics, but they do not know where to get started. So for anyone, especially those students in universities who wants to learn more, study more about robotics, what are the important skills for robotic researchers, engineers that you would like you would like them to have those skills or this knowledge. Kevin, do you want to guess her? 
Yeah, I think fundamental robotics knowledge, very important. I think uh, robotics is very broad, right? You know, there's perception, there's the, the controls, uh, there's also the mechanical side, electrical side. So it depends on what area to get into. I recommend, you know, regardless of the area, you know, dive deep and understand the fundamentals, right? So if you're doing deep learning, visual, if you're doing perception, no, not only learn about deep learning, but learn about classical computer vision, how that works. If you're learning about the motion side of things, not only learn about the, the RL, but learn about the classical controls, how that works, the, the kinematics, the dynamics, physics, classical robotics, right? Like understand the, the fundamentals and then build on top of it, you know, have a solid, strong foundation. Then that way you can, you know, build a skyscraper of knowledge on top of that foundation. Yeah. So having a solid fundamentals, I'd say very important. Yeah, totally. Go back to school and learn the maths or physics. And Shani, do you want to add on? Sure. I, I actually agree with what Kevin said, that robotics very, is inherent in very multidisciplinary field. So it's, it's, it's kind of hard to pinpoint the, the important skills for robotic researchers. But one thing I think that might be very helpful, and I believe a lot of people agree, is to get outside of one's comfort zone. For example, if a student's great at developing planning algorithms for robots, but haven't got a lot of experience with physical robots, it will be very useful to learn a little bit of knowledge in hardware or mechatronics or low-level control. You know, having exposure to different areas of robotics is, is, could be very helpful because you'll have a, a much better understanding of what potentially will work and what won't. Love it, love it, love it. Dr. Trishini, you just mentioned that joint communities of robotics. Do you have any communities recommend for students or people, developers who wants to learn more about robotics? I guess each university will have some sort of robotics club that could start. Most students who are in the research lab will form their own communities. And I think that that was very helpful. One thing to know is that I think the best way to, to learn robotics between projects. So, you know, whether class projects, personal projects, projects from the robot club or, or university projects, all of them will help. And conferences help too, you know, or if you want to know anything that's cutting edge and latest, you know, con conferences are the, the places to go. There's also, a, I think, a worldwide robotics mailing list. I think anybody can get onto it. And it's just news and, you know, job posts, things like that. Yeah, totally agree. Like always learn by doing rather than just learn. And my last question, I want us to think big. It's like, imagine you have another 25 years. So in 2050s, what do you think robotics will revolutionize our societies, the world? And at that time, how our lives will look like? Shanae, do you want to answer? Sure. I think, I think. We, we probably won't see a lot of humans in factories just because that's the, that's when automation first happened. And I think that's, well, that those are also the places where the autonomous robots will first be deployed. I guess we'll see, we'll be very used to having robots moving around our homes that do more than just vacuuming. Hopefully, you know, loading, unloading dishwashers and mopping the table, things like that. I think the big thing will be autonomous vehicles. I think most people who don't like to drive will probably 
have the chance of not needing to drive. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, imagine in the future, robotic can do a lot of things that I am doing now for a living, like driving to work or cooking for myself. So it will be all automated by bots. Kevin, do you have something to hand on? Yeah, I agree with Shelly. I think, you know, manufacturing, household, and transportation will be, we will see a very wide adoption of robots. So probably for every humans, there will be at least one robots accompanying that human, right? And I think there could be on the consumer side of things, there could be uh, robots that, you know, are with us all the time. And they could be, you know, it's, it's like a listen, hearing enhancing robots, you know, more than like the AirPods today, right? That, that like proactively filter out certain noises and they can help you listen to very, you know, specific sound. You know, there could be glasses or contact lenses that enhance the eyesight. You no, know, it helps you like read better, see better. You know, there could be like maybe exoskeleton for the disabled people or just normal people that helps them to, you know, hike for longer distances, carry heavier weights. Yeah, I think if we are on Mars at that point, I think there could be a lot of robots on Mars. Yeah, so like, I'm obviously imagining that maybe in the future, each of us will be a superhuman. It's like embedded robotics. It's like there are different robotics embedded a different part of us. Like neuroning is our brain. Like other African robotics on our arms. So on and we are saying. Hopefully, it'll be, be an interesting word. Linjia, do you want to add on about what do you think about the future of robotics? I just feel like robot will make human more human in the future. It can truly free us from this duplicated work. There will be new opportunity to get created. I'm really excited to see after robot replacing people to do all this works, what's the rest of the time people are going to do for to find the next biggest milestone that human beings are going to accomplish. Yeah, totally. We will definitely always find the next big ranger to go for. But with that, thank you, Karen and Shelly, for all your input and this really appreciate. Thank you for having us. No problem. Thank you. Thank you.